On today's show, we have Mance Harmon, the CEO and co-founder of Hadera Hashgraph. We're going to discuss details about the project, funding, team, and token, along with any plans on the roadmap. Hadera is the most used, sustainable, enterprise-grade public network for the decentralized economy. Mance, thanks for joining us today. Why don't we start with how you started with Hadera? Yeah. Well, hi, Joe. Thank you for having me. So how we started with Hedera. Hedera is enabled by Hashgraph, which was created by my business partner and, and co-founder, Lehman Bear, Dr. Lehman Bear. So Lehman and I have been working together since 1993 when we met as young officers in the U.S. Air Force doing basic research for the senior executive within the Air Force for machine learning, the guy that was responsible for machine learning in the Air Force doing basic research in a team of five people. And we became close friends. We've worked together since then, since 93. You know, that's longer than most marriages, right? <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Yeah. And so we've had a great working relationship, a career working together. We taught computer science at the Air Force Academy. I would often manage the program for the Missile Defense Agency. We decided we wanted to become entrepreneurs and have done two prior startups in the space of identity and access management, sold both of those. And then Lehman became really interested. We've always been interested in distributed systems generally, but Lehman decided he wanted to solve a really fundamental math problem in 2012. And that specifically is how do you achieve the theoretical limit of what can be achieved in terms of security for distributed consensus? while simultaneously maximizing performance. It's something that's called asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerance or ABFT. It's been well understood for decades that this ABFT property is important from a security perspective. No one has been able to figure out how to be efficient and how to make the system fast or have high throughput and low latency. And so he wanted to solve that problem. And he spent years literally working on it. And in 2015, he cracked the nut, so to speak. And that was the birth of Hashgraph. He figured out Hashgraph in 2015. So at the same time, Bitcoin, of course, became prominent over that same period and made the market for this new algorithm that Lehman had created. Coincidentally, it had nothing to do with Bitcoin. You know, It wasn't that he was doing this because Bitcoin was coming into prominence. He had other ideas for how to use the tech to create what we call shared worlds. The idea of a shared world is that people should be able to sort of reach out and carve out a slice of cyberspace and invite whomever they want into this shared world to work together or play together or exchange goods and services with one another without the need for this trusted third party, the person that normally coordinates all these activities or entity that coordinates these activities, eliminate that requirement and have a purely peer-to-peer -peer relationship with whomever you invite, this shared world. In some ways, it sounds a whole lot like the metaverse that's being talked about today, right? <laughs> so that was the genesis of Hashgraph. In 2015, he solved the problem. We created Swirls, which is a mashup of shared worlds. And Swirls built software and addressed private network customers for a couple of years, which got us to the point where we said, you know, we can build a public network on this tech. 
We've proven it out. We have formal math proofs. We have software. Let's create a public network. That was the birth of, of Hedera. And so in the fall of 2017, we got to that point. We started pulling together a team. And, and now here we are four years later. But that's how we got to Hedera. Got it. And so for the listeners, what is the difference between Hedera and the other blockchains they're currently interacting with mostly in the crypto space right now? There are a couple of really big differences. One is the underlying technology, Hashgraph. So Hashgraph, he solved the problems that I talked about. Hashgraph achieves the limit in terms of security. It's asynchronous BFT. What that means practically is that where the other layer ones are susceptible to certain classes of attacks, like denial of service, you know, your listeners might remember recently some of those platforms having denial of service problems. Adara fundamentally at the algorithm level, that's not possible because there's no leader that coordinates the activities of the consensus algorithm across the node. So that's one. It's also incredibly performant today in the throttle version of the product that we have, the platform, the network that's out there today. We have capacity for 10,000 transactions per second. And that's before we've scaled up and before we've gone multi-sharded. So 10,000 today, multi-sharding takes us into whatever is required for the use cases. So the tech is a big differentiator. Another difference is the form of governance. From the beginning, we thought that governance was going to be as important, if not more important than the technology. So we drew inspiration from Visa, the original Visa network back in 1960s when it was created. It was founded by this guy named D. Hawk, and D. wrote a book about his his experiences and what the governance model was of Visa back then. And so I marked it up. We adapted it for our context. What it looks like here today is ultimately 39 global blue chip organizations and universities, world-class universities that are providing the governance of the network. And when we talk about governance, to be a little more concrete, what I'm speaking of are the decisions around product roadmap, you know, what the technology roadmap is going to look like and how to prioritize it, legal and regulatory posture on a global basis, the setting of pricing of the services of the network, the management of treasury, those types of things. So today we have 25 of the 39. We have 25 now in place. In fact, this morning, we just announced DBS, which is the major bank out of Singapore. And they're the latest council member to be announced. But it's that caliber. You know, Google is on it, LG, IBM, WorldPay. Magazine Louisa out of South Africa, Brazil, Standard Bank out of South Africa, Shinhan out of Korea. There's all of these multinational organizations working together to create the network, to provide the governance of the network, to ensure that this is a stable platform that will last for 100 years. That's the idea. So for me, most of the people that are kind of just doing research with the thousands of projects that we see out there, right? What is it about Hedera that is attracting these global participants and why is it that they want to participate here and maybe not across other platforms? Well, a lot of it is the government. It's both of those same value points. But consider this, when you're a multinational or a large enterprise, 
and you want to, you're considering a platform to spend literally to spend millions of dollars building an application that's going to run on top of it. You want to know that it's going to be managed and governed in a professional way. And when you look at Hedera, you see peers and you not only do you see peers that you trust by reputation to do a good job of the governance, there's an opportunity in many cases to participate directly in the governance, to participate as a council member in the governance itself. And so there's just a different level of, this is going to sound pejorative, I don't mean for it to, but a different level of professionalism or ability to engage directly in the community of organizations that are like-minded and are, you know, to participate in, in the governance of the platform on which you're spending millions of dollars building ADAPT. So that's a big one. And then security is not to be discounted. The thing about security, nobody cares about it until something happens. <laughs> it's always life. That's life. It's like an insurance policy. You pay your, your money for your car insurance or whatever, and it just feels like a haze. And then you get in an accident and you're sure glad that you have it. And the same thing is true here. We started by building the strongest brick, the most secure brick that one could build. It's a, an ABFT brick. And the house that you build from an A set of ABFT bricks looks very different than the house that's built if you don't have ABFT. And if you're building mission critical applications, then that's really important. In those, the largest organizations that have reputations already, so, you know, there's a very different dynamic here between startups and enterprise, right? With a startup, you can take risks, you announce things before they're done. Sometimes you announce things when there's nothing but a back of the envelope kind of understanding of what the product is going to be, et cetera, et cetera. You need to get traction and you take a different set of risks than an enterprise or a multinational that doesn't announce anything until they're going to market with a fully baked solution. And if you have that reputation already to protect, then you care about security up front when making the decisions about what platform to build on top of. And so there are different value propositions here in Hedera to that caliber of customer. And have you guys, I guess, since inception, pivoted along the way to attract this clientele or just by design up front it, let me explain why because a lot of people don't appreciate this or understand why two things one is business you know how do you get enterprise how do you attract enterprise but actually a lot of it flowed from tech believe it or not the idea is this when you have a token in a proof of stake system you need to somehow convince the market that the token holders that are running the nodes, the validator nodes, and have some weight in voting on the order of transactions, right? So in the proof of stake system, you have the node operators, they each have a wallet that contains the token for the system. And typically the weight of their vote on the order of transactions is a function of the number of tokens that they hold. Well, in the early days, when the token has almost no value, let's say you choose 100 of your buddies mm -hmm. to stand up validator nodes, and you give each one of them, I said 100, so 1% of the total supply. Everyone starts with an 
equal number of tokens. And then the token price starts going up. The, not the token price. It's really the market cap, right? The market cap starts getting high. Do you trust those 100 people not to steal the money? Because they can, right? Because they control the ordering of the transactions because they have all the tokens or more than two-thirds of the tokens. And the answer should be no. <laughs> the answer is you should not trust them to not steal the money. So how do you bootstrap trust when it's possible for a bad actor to buy up a lot of the token supply? The way we solve that problem is by getting multinationals to fill that role. And these multinationals care far more about their individual brands than they do about this little project called Hedera, right? They're not going to steal money. That First off, they're chosen to be cross-industry. It's not all companies from a single industry. They're cross-industry, 16, 17 sectors. They're geo-distributed. And then finally, they're term limited. They can't stay members forever. They have to leave after two terms for a total of six years. And they care more about their brands than they do us. Therefore, it's reasonable to assume that the market's going to believe that they can trust this initial network of validator nodes run by these organizations not to steal the money or influence the ordering of the transactions. So, you know, the way we got to where we are happened at the very beginning when brainstorming how do you bootstrap trust in a public POS DLT. And it was also the case, given the technology, the strength of the technology and the obvious use cases for enterprise for the technology, that we started there. And then as a result of that, we now have this council of 25 growing to 39. Many of them are already building product. Most of them have not announced for reasons I've already stated. And what we're building, of course, is good for the startup, you know, the entrepreneur. And we got most of our transactions today are coming from small and medium businesses. So it's, it's great for the startup community, but it's hardened and built with a level of security and quality that the big enterprise and governments would appreciate as well. When you say product, can you give some insights to what that is actually? Because I don't think we always notice what's really going on behind the scenes and what's <laughs> you know being built. Yeah. Maybe product is not the best. Applications, whatever. But the services, yep. that was my word. I, I, I use the word product, but services of the network. So when we launched the network, in 2018, September of 2018. So the network was actually up and running in September of 2018. We minted 50 billion tokens in 2018, but it was closed. And only by invitation could anybody come and build anything on top of the network. In 2019, we opened up the network to the public. Open access is what we called it. And we had three core services from the get-go. Cryptocurrency as a service, just, you know, Alice can pay Bob a token. There's a service with an API that made it really easy to do that. Then file storage, distributed file storage, and smart contracts. And it was the EVM, you know, so to be compatible with the EVM on Ethereum or, or whatever. Then we sort of took a step back and observed how the market was interacting with those services, how the developer community was interacting with those services. And we noticed something really interesting. Because of the really low cost of the cryptocurrency service 
it's a fraction of a penny to transfer tokens from one party to another. And it's fixed and denominated in USD. So it's not the case that as HBAR, our cryptocurrency, floats up and down on the market, that the cost per transaction also floats. It doesn't happen that way. You as a developer can project out what your cost of goods are going to be for this application you're building because the cost for API calls is fixed in USD. And what we saw was the community of developers basically using our cryptocurrency service in a way that hadn't been used in a DLT before. They would do things like take documents or pictures or anything digital, hash it, and then take the hash and put it into the memo field of a cryptocurrency transaction and then send themselves a cryptocurrency transaction. You know, just send themselves however many HBAR they want. Now, what happens when they do that is that transaction goes into the network. It gets a timestamp on it, a consensus timestamp. So all the nodes running in the network by these multinationals, they come to agreement on a timestamp and they timestamp this transaction. And now the developer has a consensus timestamp on the hash of this digital document so that in the future, they can provide that document to any third party and let that third party hash the document, compare the hashes that's in this cryptocurrency transaction and know the document's not been tampered with or changed in any way. And it's been that way since the timestamp, whenever the timestamp happened. It was a distributed notary service that they created with our cryptocurrency service. We said, okay, that's cool. Let's just formalize that and create what we today call the Hedera Consensus Service. So it's now a new, it's the fourth primary service. And that has been the foundation of a lot of use cases, a lot of work. That came out in the fall of 2020, last fall. IBM helped us design that. IBM's on the council as well. IBM helped us design that. And then one of the first things we did was build a connector between Hyperledger and Hedera, where enterprises or anybody that's building a Hyperledger network, it could be private, it could be a public network, doesn't matter. You create this Hyperledger network. And now the transactions, instead of having to stand up nodes to run consensus, you use our consensus service for the ordering of the transactions. And there are a lot of benefits come with that. You know, it's outsourced or it's like what we call Hashgraph as a service to the larger market. And so Hyperledger can do this. EEA can do this. We have connectors for a bunch of these. And then there are a bunch of companies that have just used it directly for their own databases and own use cases. So it's centralized systems, centralized databases where there's already a product in the market. The market trusts this company to run a centralized database. They can use the Hedera consensus service as an augment to their centralized database and get an additional layer of trust, distributed trust that they couldn't otherwise get that gives them product differentiation in the market they're in today. And it's trust plus, right? And so that was way cool. And then finally, what we've done is added a tokenization service. Mm. And that came out in February of this year, started it last year, came out in February of this year. 
the idea behind it is, well, obviously what you would expect by the name, it makes it possible <laughs> for anyone to create a token, to issue a token and manage that token, but it's a native service. You don't have to use smart contracts. And the reason that's important is a developer that wants to quickly issue a token and manage things like KYC, AML, minting additional tokens, burning tokens, so token supply, all of these features that you, you know, 80% of the features that are important for the management of a token supply are built into just our API at the native layer. So again, everything's denominated in dollars. It takes a fraction of a cent to transfer these tokens, to create the tokens and transfer these tokens. It's really cheap and no smart contracts are involved, which means you don't have to go get a security audit on your smart contract. And if you're making changes to the smart contract, you don't have to worry about migrating from the old version to the new version. You know, there are a lot of advantages of going native in the layer one protocol like we've done versus building everything into a smart contract. So those are the services. We got cryptocurrency, file storage, EVM, HCS, that consensus service, and then tokenization service as well. That's what I mean when I say product. Product's not the right word. Services, yeah. I and mean, when it comes to tokenization, what are you seeing as the best use case at the moment? And what asset? It's interesting. So we have financial organizations on the council that are interested in and have stated publicly their interest in tokenizing bond issuances. For example, Standard Bank of South Africa is interested in tokenizing bond issuances. Standard Bank and Shinhan are interested in CBDCs. But then outside of the kind of traditional sort of what you would expect in tokenization of financial services, of course, NFTs are important and hot. We've announced partnerships with Animoca Brands for the creation of tokens that will be used in gaming context, tokens that end up getting issued and backed by HBAR, for example, that are going to be used in, in their environments, their, their gaming environments. So I wouldn't say that there is really one use case that is dominant when it comes to tokenization. I do think NFTs, of course, are going to be huge. But my vision of the way that NFTs is going to be used maybe is different than what you would hear from most layer one protocols. And it has everything to do with what our other council members are pursuing. And let me explain this. When you take tokenization generally, and you apply it to enterprise, and let's go with supply chain. Let's go with the supply chain use case. You know, supply chain use cases go back, what, seven, eight, nine years. It's like one of the earliest use cases for distributed ledgers. And back then, what you would have is a ledger where each of the rows in the ledger represents some product or widget that is flowing through the supply chain. And there would be information that's stored, the provenance information, is captured for that widget that's flowing through the supply chain and all the members of the supply chain have a common view into this database. There are a lot of efficiencies to be realized from that. With tokenization, you can take it a step further. 
And what I mean by that is now, instead of these widgets being represented as rows in the database, each widget is represented by a token. And the token has the same provenance information inside of it. So you still capture all the same type of information, but now in the form of a token. And the token is designed for economic activity. It's designed to transfer from one party to another. So you have raw materials coming in. Each of those raw materials are represented by tokens. They get combined ultimately into a token that represents, say, sneakers that are on a supply chain. And then later on, these tokens associated with the, the sneakers are used in a DeFi context or it could be in a CeFi context where the tech stack is embedded into the workflow to get a capital loan in real time in an automated fashion with the tokens being exchanged as the collateral. And then that comes through in the stable coin, say USDC, for example, and you use USDC then to finance your operations. Then the sneakers, the widgets associated with sneakers and sneakers continue to flow through the supply chain and you get to product insurance and you have an automatic interface with product insurance in a similar way. Later, you are selling the sneakers and there's a transfer of the tokens to the purchaser downstream in, in the distribution channel. And what do you get in return? You get an AR, an accounts receivable associated with this lot of sneakers and the AR is represented by a token. And that token then you turn around again in an automated way and interface with DeFi to factor the tokens. And you get cash for factoring the tokens, the AR, factoring the ARs. So what's this mean? Everything that you see and touch is going to end up with a digital twin. We're going to live in a tokenized world, right? And all of these tokens are going to be distributed ultimately to the end users, to the consumers. And so I now am buying a fancy pair of sneakers that are collectibles and I get my token that goes along with them. And that token I can use however I want to use. And this is where it gets tied into the metaverse. So what's the metaverse? The metaverse is the idea that you can have all of these different shared worlds that are in some ways walled gardens, but there are interfaces, there are bridges between these shared worlds that makes it possible to seamlessly and easily move these tokens back and forth between these shared worlds. And there's some new user interfaces. There's AR and there's VR. And of course, they're going to be browsers. And it's kind of like Second Life on steroids, but it's it's a layer of tokenization supported by DLT on top of real life. Because in real life, they're real objects and every real object is going to end up with a digital twin. That's the vision for you know, the future of tokenization and how it sort of relates to the metaverse ultimately and why all of these enterprise use cases and all this enterprise infrastructure is so important because it takes the whole thing mainstream in a way that you don't get if you're just playing in a, in a game, right? NFTs in a game are very cool. They're hot. They're important. They've demonstrated something really important, but it's so much bigger than that. And that's what we're enabling. From, I guess, maybe the investor standpoint, this kind of 
doing some due diligence through a stack of projects that are out there, it seems that there's not a real easy way to determine the achievements that are happening most of the time or what services, applications are being done. What are the transactions users? I mean, how do we kind of bring that, like you mentioned the supply chain, but like what companies are using it, what blockchains or what chains and like how, why is there a lack of transparency there? I don't know if that transparency is the right word, but a lack of front-facing information. Oh, so for Hedera, I mean, there's a problem with this generally in the DLT ecosystem. Yep. But for us, we pride ourselves on, I think we're probably the most transparent of all the layer ones, and that's by design as well. If you go to the website, you can click on you know the various tabs and you'll see all the partners that have announced, you'll see who's running the nodes. There are no anonymous nodes today. And actually, I want to make this, it's an important point. You actually just raised it. (laughs) There's an important point here. When you talk about centralization and consolidation, if you allow anonymity, then there is no way to know how centralized the system really is. Because a single actor can stand up lots of different nodes They can represent a lot of hashing power, and no one knows that it's one entity behind all those different nodes. So while I believe in anonymous nodes, ultimately, I think it is important. It's also worth just pointing out that it comes at the cost of transparency. So if you really want transparency, you want to know who are running the nodes and what's going on then you have to do something like what we've done. Everyone knows who our node operators are. The governance of the network is, so the council meets every other month. All the minutes of those council meetings get published publicly. They get hashed on our using our consensus service. They get put on the website. Everyone can read the minutes of those meetings. And then all of the different partners that we've partnered with, that, and of course we can't, force the partners to announce what they're doing. But for those partners that have announced what they're doing, all of that is on our website. So I think transparency is important. And for those that are interested, it's not hard to find. Just go to to the website and you'll see dozens and dozens and dozens of press releases and, and all the information one might need. All right, let's jump into a little bit about the HBAR, right? The token. Okay. Can you kind of, breakdown of what role does that play within Hedera? So there are two. There there are two reasons why you need, at least for us, and I do recognize that we're different than many of the other platforms in this regard, but there are two reasons why you need an HBAR. One is that we're a proof-of-stake network. And if you move from a permissioned network where every node is known and you can say have one vote per node, in that scenario, it's really easy to ensure that no bad actor comes in and dominates and can dictate the order of transactions. But if you move from that to a proof of stake network where it's expected that there will be many thousands of nodes and and a lot of those are gonna be anonymous, like we've talked about, then you need some other mechanism to ensure that a bad actor can't come in and dominate consensus. The way you do that is by creating a scarce resource. The scarce resource here is the HBAR itself. And as long as 
good actors control at least two thirds of the H bar, good actors vote the weight of two thirds of the H bar, then you don't have any problems. If one bad actor can buy up a third or more of the H bar, then they can influence and create the, the, the ordering of the transactions and create problems. That's why we started permissioned and we are bootstrapping. And as the value of H bar goes up in terms of total market cap, it becomes increasingly difficult for a bad actor to ever buy up a third of the H bar and therefore the network always remains safe. So we're at the permission stage with the council members running the nodes. The next step is to allow community nodes, non-council members that are known, participate in consensus and we'll go multi-sharded with that. And then the final step is to allow anonymous nodes when we're sure that there, there's no danger. So is expanding with the community nodes, does that drive some of the price movements? Well, I doubt it because we don't have community nodes today. You know, when we do have community nodes, then there will be those that want to, that it is the case that when a transaction is made with a particular node, the node charges what we call a node fee. So there are three fees associated with the transaction. One is a node fee. The other one is a network fee. And the final one is a service fee. And the node fee goes to the node that receives the transaction. The network fee is a common fee just for the network operation. It goes to all the different participants in the network. And then there's a service fee that reflects the actual underlying costs of the particular service that's being used because each service requires a different amount of raw resource, CPU cycles, storage, et cetera. And that also gets distributed out to um, the transactions flow into treasury. And then from treasury, whatever is required would be paid to all the different nodes. So ultimately, yes, the community nodes will do this because there is a business model that incentivizes them to run nodes. And it may be that it's the node fees. It may be that they want to add products or services on top of their node that they're going to monetize. Who knows? You know, there's a whole economy of possibilities there. So is it the sharing of the service fee and the treasury management that allows the project to continuously be funded? Ultimately, that has to be the case. Ultimately, that has to be the case. In the short term, it's a non-issue. So let me go back and answer and then come back to this because there were two parts. There was a security of the network for the HBAR and then the HBAR also serves as a utility. And it's a utility in the way I just described. The function of the network requires the HBAR when developers make transactions, they pay the HBAR for the use of the services. So it's security and utility. Now, we minted 50 billion HBAR back in September of, of 18, like we talked about earlier. And I would need to go and look at the exact numbers today. On our website is a document that goes into all the gory detail of token economics and how those tokens have been allocated and what the schedule is for releasing those tokens over time. But the important point, and again, I don't remember the exact numbers. The important point is that there's a lot of token that remains in treasury that is not legally obligated yet. So for the foreseeable future, there is token there to incentivize community nodes as we scale up, not just community nodes, but council member nodes, whatever, as we scale up 
until the economy is there and, and the business models are in place to support this on an ongoing basis in a self-sustained way. God, I mean, that's ultimately one of the questions from a, especially an investor standpoint is how does a project sustain itself over a longer period of time? And it's not really talked about as much, you know, besides short-term capital raise. Yeah. Well, I think the interesting thing is that we've recognized that's the case and we have actually split. A lot of the projects will tie the transactions. They'll create a function that dictates how much of the transaction fee goes to the node. It's almost like a dividend. It's almost like a dividend in some ways. And that's what I don't like about it, by the way. If tokens are flowing into a given platform and you're running a node and you sort of view this stream of transactions as creating a a revenue stream that is akin to dividends, then I don't like that for a whole lot of reasons. So what we do instead is the tokens flow into treasury and then the council decides what to pay the nodes and it's not a direct function of revenue, right? So all these tokens that are flowing into treasury, it's not the case that say 10% automatically gets paid out to all of the validator nodes, all the node operators. It's that the council will say what is required in terms of payments to be sufficient that parties will go out and stand up nodes and run those nodes. And then that's what will be paid. What is the market rate that is needed to ensure that we have the network of node operators that's needed to support the ecosystem? And those are the rates that get paid, independent of however much transaction is flowing into the network. How large is the size of the team these days? That's an interesting question. And and the reason it's nuanced is because we just recently announced, we didn't create it, but a foundation has been stood up. From the beginning, we have understood that we're going to bootstrap this network and that the staff was needed to bootstrap the network. But it was always anticipated that the network would be member-led and member-governed and member-operated. But there was a lot of work to be done to get it to that point. You can't start fully decentralized in that way. It's just not possible. So we we get to a milestone this year. And, and that is that over the course of the year, some folks that we've known have said, we'll create a foundation and we're going to pursue the growth of the ecosystem. And it's all the things you might consider. You know, it's incentivizing dApps to participate working with on-ramps, it's uh, paying grants to open source projects that will become part of the platform, et cetera, those types of things. And so we funded that foundation about a month ago, maybe it's a little more than a month, but roughly a month ago to the tune of 10.7 billion tokens. And roughly half of that is earmarked today for the foundation. It's a lot, right? It's like, $5 billion worth of value, something like that. As a result of that, the part of the team that would do those activities are no longer part of our team. They've moved over to the foundation. And that was sort of the first step in externalizing operations and drawing down 
operations to something that ultimately will very likely just be a network with everything being externalized to the member organizations in the network. To answer your question more directly, you have to how do you count them? <laughs> you know, Swirls has developers and Swirls is building software for the platform. The foundation has all of these resources that are now giving grants and building out the ecosystem in the way that I just described. Most of those people, not all, but most of those people moved from us over to the foundation. And then, we, of course, we have staff here that is part of Hedera that reports to a board of managers and is managed, governed by committees that are populated by the members themselves. And then there are a bunch of third parties out there that have built software for the platform as well that don't have names that anyone today would necessarily recognize. <laughs> and so, you know, how do you count it? But if you were looking at just the staff and no one else, I'm guessing it's somewhere of roughly 65 to 75 people. And the reason I don't know the answer is because we just lost a bunch of them. And, uh, but I expect it to shrink. That's the important point. I expect that it's very likely over time that these operations continue to be externalized and that's healthy. What you want is a fully distributed, decentralized ecosystem of participants that are all doing various parts of this and they're all doing it at maturity for those organizations. And that's robust. That's far more robust from an ecosystem perspective than it is to have, you know, just a team, a central team staff that is bootstrapping everything. Well, that's good. Let's roll on to maybe what is one thing that you see that Hedera needs to improve on and how maybe you're going to implement that in the upcoming roadmap? That's an interesting question. So when we look at the roadmap, most of the features that we envisioned at the beginning have been delivered. But one has not. And this is getting pretty technical. So I'll be very brief. Yep. <laughs> the idea is that when you have all the nodes running, what we envision is that you can push a button, more than push a button. The council members or whomever it is that's governing can sign a transaction. And then that transaction contains the payload or, or is associated with the payload that is the update to all the nodes in the network. And that's what we call it. We call it update. That's the name of the feature. And so that's the last well, the last major feature to be delivered. I'm expecting that to be delivered soon. I hesitate always on these podcasts to, to name a date, but it's soon. And that's very cool, right? Because what it means is the council, it's all sort of on-chain governance. The council signs the transaction that results in all the nodes simultaneously updating their software and there's no interruption, there's no need to bring the network down to apply a patch, no matter how brief it is, update just happens. Now, technically there's, you know, there'll be a very brief moment, probably measured in minutes, I'm, I'm guessing, where the patch is applied and, and all the nodes, but, but, but it's all automated and it's all done through a transaction. So that's still coming and it's imminent in weeks or small number of months. I'm not going to go specific, but it's, it's imminent. And then, you know, in a lot of ways, we have V1 of 
of the software. Now, whether we formally announce that it's V1 at that point in time, I don't know. Community nodes will continue to improve community nodes and will bring the creation of the community nodes, I should say, and then bring in community node operators. I think that's going to be a major milestone. That's in the relative near term as well. Everybody asks about staking. We don't provide staking rewards today. And that ultimately will be added. But, you know, there are a lot of things to work out to make sure that not only, I mean, the technology could be done, right? It's, it's not really a technology issue. It has far more to do with the regulatory environment and ensuring that you don't create a problem there by providing staking rewards. So that will eventually happen as well. All right. Well, let's wrap up maybe with the final question here. Uh, what do you think about the future of enterprise blockchain and layer ones and where it's going? Enterprise, and everyone understands this is not some major insider that I have that no one else does, but enterprise is slower to adopt. And when we started all of this years ago, people said, you're crazy. You're not going to be able to pull together a bunch of global enterprises into a council number one. And number two, even if you do, it's going to take a long time for them to go to market. They were right. It was hard. They were wrong in that we, we did it. I mean, they, they thought we couldn't do it. We, we didn't know if we could do it. We did it. And we continue to add world-class council members. But the work behind the scenes has been happening. We started all this in 2017. Here we are, in, we're nearing the end of 2021. and this year especially has been great from an enterprise development perspective. So there's a lot going on there. The whole world today is sort of focused on NFTs and DeFi. And I think there will come a time when you start seeing major enterprise use cases go to market and the narrative is going to shift. And all of a sudden, people are going to say, enterprise has arrived in terms of use cases. And that's going to be, it's going to have its own cycle, just like DeFi has its cycle today. And it's it's not that far off in my estimation. A lot of these use cases that we've talked about here today, supply chain as an example, all that stuff's being built. And the value that we're talking about in having tokens associated with widgets flowing off the supply chain, all that infrastructure is being done. And it's going to result in a significant change, ultimately, in the way that workflows happen, the way that enterprises interact with each other, the B2B exchange of tokens that's automatically part of workflows. All of that is a really big deal. And I think that Hedera is uniquely positioned in the world to realize the benefits of that. I mean, we have the perfect customer advisory board right? We have the council and the council is directing and governing this network that they care about that they want to use. So I'm excited. The vision is coming true. I just expect it to continue to grow and, and get better with, with each passing quarter. Well, do you think there'll be more concentration in certain layer ones or will there be many layer ones and maybe they all have different abilities to execute certain businesses differently or better than others? I don't think that they'll have certain abilities to execute use cases better than others, ultimately, because I just don't believe it's true. I think that ultimately it will be important 
if we assume that the layer ones are able to scale in this roughly the same way, and it is important to look at apple to apple comparisons, you know, let me just say, when you hear claims that you can scale millions of transactions per second, okay, that's meaningless, right? And what you really need to know is within a single shard, how many transactions can you process? And then what do the transactions look like? Are those full-blown smart contract calls? And how much CPU cycles are those smart contracts using for any given smart contract? There's just too many variables to you know, broadly use a brush there. And, and so it's important to look at Apple, Apple comparisons. If we assume that the layer ones are able to scale in roughly the same ways, then what I think is that the at the bottom of the tech stack, the kinds of services that we're providing will be provided by everybody. And then what will be important is security, which is the most secure platform. When the attacks begin to happen and networks go offline for days at a time, I mean, think about Netflix. Would they use a cloud platform if their service went offline for days at a time? Absolutely not. No way. And so security is going to be a big differentiator in the end. And early adoption by large enterprise use cases and the, the demonstration of that is going to be important and ultimately governance. Do you trust the group of organizations or entities that are responsible for ensuring the ongoing maintenance and growth and shepherding of the layer one over time? Who do you trust with your business? Those three things. So security, governance, and early adoption. All right. Well, let's leave it off there. That was beautiful. Uh, best way for those that would like to learn more about Hedera or get in touch with you. Oh, it's easy. We got connections or, you know, contact email addresses on the website and people are always monitoring those sorts of things. My email is always way too full. I don't see it most of the time. So contacting me through email is not a good way to do it. Although it's easy to do. If you just try to figure it out, it won't be hard to catch me that way. So the, the best way is through the links on the website. Well, Mance, I appreciate taking your time out today. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. It was fun. 